welcome to Evolution Sucks, out of the primordial ooze and into our best life. I'm back solo this week as I wanted to talk more about my journey to become aware of and overcome the trauma that has informed most of my life. How is it that someone who has devoted so much of their life to spiritual pursuits still can have that hidden shadow stay mostly hidden until it doesn't? That shadow kept surfacing in all my relationships and with perfect strangers. That rage buried under the facade of a composed, self-aware man would show up when I was triggered. And man, did it show up scary. That all said, here's some more of my story. As I was writing this for the podcast, the overarching takeaway was this. I have lived a charmed life. I'm not being facetious. I really can see how a kid born with a deformity, losing his father at age three, living with an abusive brother, and sabotaging relationships over and over again, kept doggedly showing up to see what lay beyond. How did I turn the self-judgmental, self-critical, self-loathing aspect of my mind into a positive mindset? Well, make a cup of tea, pull up a comfy chair, and listen in. It's story time. The Seeker. Since I was a young man, I wanted to understand my own mind my own shortcomings, and my desire to be free of the suffering. If the outside of the fruit looks and feels normal, and yet if the inside is damaged, the real spiritual progress will be incremental. This was the underlying theme of my seeking. Hardcore drugs and drinking from age 12 to 21 did little to advance my awareness, except reflect back to me how troubled I was. Turning the martial arts provided an outlet for my physicality and my ongoing struggle with authority was tempered with the required respect of the sensei. I learned the hard way, getting tossed to the mat repeatedly. Still, there had to be more than being a walking punching bag. Around this time, I had a dream that I was sitting on the floor in a dojo-like space holding a short staff. One by one, men would enter the space, sit across from me, and we would start grappling over the staff. And one by one, the men would gain control of the staff and whack me across the head with it, knocking me over, then leave the room. The last man in this line of men came and sat across from me. His eyes were kinder than the other men. As we began the struggle over the staff, I was determined not to get hit again. I was working my hardest to gain control, and this last man had such a deep look of compassion in his eyes right before he yanked the staff from my hands and laid it down. I then woke up. Buddhism called. Six months later, after having an introduction made and an address and an appointed time to meet a Tibetan Buddhist guru, who was a Dzogchen master, I arrived at his apartment in Manhattan. 
I knocked a few times with no answer and sat down on the floor in the hallway outside the apartment door. I'm not sure how long I was sitting there, wondering if I had the time and location wrong, when suddenly the apartment door opened and a short Sikhamese man wearing an untucked polo shirt and corduroys in bare feet looked down at me and asked, Are you a meditator? <laughs> the problem was I couldn't answer because I was stunned. It was the man from my dream who took my staff and laid it down. He invited me in, and that began my next journey. The year was 1981. A decade of hardcore Tibetan Buddhist practice may have done little to address the trauma I carried inside. Of course, there are some real highlights, having the immense privilege of meeting His Holiness the Dalai Lama twice, having almost constant access to my teacher. I got good at sitting for hours, being at my guru's beck and call, and finding some inner tranquility, but honestly, I was still angry inside, still triggered by the outside world, still grasping. Eventually, I couldn't handle the stress and pressure of devoting 24-7 of my 20s to a path that demanded the ultimate sacrifice, total obeisance to the teacher and the dharma. I blew out of my sangha in a rush, discovering mountain biking to be more in line with the kind of meditation and focus that felt more in sync with my need to move energy and be in my body and out of my head. Not heeding my guru's admonishments to quit riding a bike and stick to my sadhana, and not long after I left the Dharma practice, I fell off a 35-foot cliff on my bike. I wish I could say that fall was the pivotal moment of my young life. Unfortunately, not. After that crash, the guru gave my wife an ultimatum, follow her wayward husband to hell or stick with the Buddha Dharma Sangha. She chose the latter. That began a spiral into deep unhappiness and a miserable period of heavy alcohol consumption. I've never really enjoyed getting shit-faced. I was literally spending my free time after work in the Lower East Side of Manhattan at a bar called Alcatraz. How fucking perfect. I was metaphorically and actually doing time, serving my self-imposed jail sentence. I eventually realized this path was going to get me into serious trouble, as one night I must have pissed off a couple of bar patrons who came after me as I stumbled out of the bar. I ran for my life and was able to get into the shell of my pickup truck bed without being noticed. I could hear their voices angrily and loudly calling for me to show myself and take my beating. I was fucking terrified. They had no idea where I had gone. I awoke the next morning, still in the back of my truck, massively hungover and knowing it was a time for a reset. My next path showed up quite unexpectedly. I was a new father in a new marriage, number two if you're keeping track, working for myself as a carpenter, living not far from the Green Meadow Waldorf School in Spring Valley, New York. 
A friend and a teacher at the school mentioned that he was hosting an anipi, or sweat lodge, ceremony in a couple of weeks and invited me to come. He mentioned the ceremony would be run by two Lakota brothers from South Dakota. I told him I would be there. About a week later, I had a strange and prophetic dream. In the dream, I approached a house in the country with a large front porch. On the porch were three strapping young Native American men. I stopped at the stairs. They asked what I wanted. I said I was here to see the elder. They, they laughed and said he's not available. I'll wait, I said. You're going to be waiting a long time. I walked away from the porch and sat on the ground. Night fell, and I eventually curled up on the ground and fell asleep. Early the next morning, I awoke to the front door opening and the elder stepping out. He strode up to me and said, let's walk. We walked down this jeep track in silence. Then suddenly I felt a shift in my body and I was walking on four legs. The elder had shape-shifted me into an actual dog. At first I was startled, but then felt myself relax, walking casually by the elder's side. Then I woke up. I had no idea what to make of that dream until a week later when the Anipi ceremony was starting. I had purchased some loose tobacco as an offering, being told that was an appropriate gift. As I pulled up to the field where the lodge had been set up, I noticed two Native American men huddled over a couple of drums working on them. There was a fire burning nearby, apparently heating up the rocks for the ceremony. As I got out of my truck and approached the men, one of them looked up and nodded. It was the elder from my dream. I stopped dead in my tracks. My mind was swirling, trying to assign some kind of logic to what felt supernatural. The elder spoke. Hey, grab that other drum over there and bring it here. As I did, I handed him the tobacco. He nodded again and introduced me to his brother. They both looked to be in their early 50s. More and more people showed up, and eventually the ceremony began. All I remember was that it was the hottest I have ever been, with short breaks to allow some air inside this small dome crammed full of 20 people. After four rounds and more hot rocks brought inside each round, and lots of aho matakuyasin, which means all my relatives, or we are all related, called out, the ceremony was over. There was a potluck after the ceremony at my friend's house, and all during the meal the elder and I kept glancing at each other. My heart was racing, unsure of what was happening. I eventually walked towards the elder, and as I did, he also stood up and said, follow me. We walked outside, and he motioned for me to get in the front seat of his Suburban. As I slid into the seat, the back doors opened, and two native boys, maybe 9 and 11 years old, with long black braids, got inside. The elder introduced his two sons as Red Elk and Red Tail. They didn't acknowledge me. The elder offered me a smoke, and not wanting to be disrespectful, I was a non-smoker, I took one. After a minute or two of silence, he turns to me and says, Tell me about your dream. 
I pretty much passed out either from the shock of that question or the tobacco in my lungs. At any rate, I relayed my dream. The boys in the back were silent, as was the elder, after I was finished. Then the elder spoke. He said that the dog soldiers were the most highly revered of the warriors in the tribe, being always the first in battle and ensuring the safety of the women and children and the elderly of the tribe, first and foremost. That hung in the air for a bit as I tried to understand what he meant. Then he turned to me and said, You should come back to South Dakota with us, to the res. The year was 1992. Could I really drop my life, leave my new wife and two-year-old son, Nick, and travel with a man and his family I met in a dream and had only spent a few hours with that day? Packing up our house and putting it in storage, my wife and son went to live on an ashram in upstate New York, unsure how long my adventure would last. My marriage was super rocky, and maybe the distance would do us some good. My anger was about to go undercover. And in hindsight, my carved choice said a lot about my need to control, to stay in control, and to keep people intimidated so they wouldn't see the real me. My vehicle for this journey was a late model white unmarked Crown Victoria, an ex-state trooper car. In the trunk were my two firearms at the time, a 3030 Model 94 Winchester, the iconic cowboy gun, and a 12-gauge Winchester pump shotgun, and plenty of ammo for both. On the back side of the driver's side visor was a placard that said, FBI, official business. Even as I say this, I have no fucking idea what I was thinking. Obviously, I wasn't. The movie Thunderheart had just come out, and more than likely I felt some fantasy that I was living that script. Role-playing? Yes. I looked the native part with my long braid down my back, except that my hair was blonde and my skin white. I'm still not entirely sure how it all came to pass that I was following the elder and his family on the East Coast powwow circuit where he and his brother were leading the drumming circle, singing and drumming out the spiritual songs of the Lakota people. From there, we headed west to the prairies and to a powwow at the Lower Brule Reservation, where I was one of five Wasichu, white person, among 500 Native Americans. These South Dakota powwows were completely different than the East Coast powwows, that were a mix of mountain men, off-the-gridders, wannabe Indians, and curious white folk who were buying their wares. This powwow was all about the regalia and the dancing and singing and drumming long into the night. As I set up my tent on a small rise overlooking the dance grounds, I marveled at how I was standing there in that moment in time, feeling like I was living a movie. My spirit felt incredibly free. I felt at home. Later that summer, we all traveled to the Cheyenne River Res to the Sundance. There I met Arville Looking Horse, the spiritual leader of the Lakota, and the pipe keeper for the tribe. 
again, I was one of a handful of Wasichu standing and fasting and supported the dancers. It felt like a dream meeting some of the extras from Dances with Wolves and doing ceremony with them. Because of whom I was with, I was always welcomed everywhere I went. People with so very little opening their homes and feeding us. I was so moved by their generosity, having so little themselves. I will never forget that experience. As I drove away from the Sundance grounds when it was over, I looked up and there above the grounds was a large cloud high in the sky. It was in the perfect shape of a buffalo skull. There is no question of what it was. Pre-cell phone days, otherwise I'd have a picture. Magic was everywhere on the res. Alas, this wild adventure had to end. I was out of money, the powwow season was over, and I decided to head back east to visit my family and find the carpentry gig to replenish the funds. I had been on my best behavior during this time, in service to the elder and his family, a big part of me wished I could have lived the rest of my life this way, in support of the Native American way of life, the old ways. My rage was calm. All this time, though, I wondered, why me? What was the meaning of that dream? Why out of the many wannabe Indians, which I was not even aware of before my dream, was I picked? Why was I driving around with guns in the trunk? Why was I so accepted by the native people I met? I had no idea, but I would soon find out. Later that fall, the elder came back to Spring Valley for a visit. I drove down from Massachusetts where I was living temporarily with my cousin. As people mingled in the house of my friend, the elder and I had a moment alone. The question that had been cycling inside me had to get asked. Why me? So I turned to the elder and asked him point blank, why did you pick me? Without any hesitation, he said one word, assassin. Huh? I had no idea what that meant. I didn't get a chance to ask him as he turned and walked away, leaving me to wonder for the remainder of my life what he meant by that. I knew there was much political turmoil on the res, especially as casinos began to funnel massive amounts of money onto their reservations. And there was a simmering conflict between the tribe members who wanted to return to the traditional way of life, giving up drinking and embracing ceremony, and those who wanted the white man way, acquiring more and better things that money could buy. But who would I kill? And why? And was this really my battle to wage? There were so many incredible moments, belly laughs, lots of coffee and cigarettes, beautiful people waiting to reclaim Turtle Island and return to a traditional way of life. As I drove back to Massachusetts later that day feeling unsettled, I knew my time walking the red road was over. I would never truly be part of the Lakota Nation, no matter how much I looked or acted to part. That winter, the elder kept calling the house phone where I lived, leaving messages asking when I would return to South Dakota. 
Finally, I answered the phone one day and said, I'm not coming back. I need to take care of my family. He was not happy. I took the guns out of the trunk of the Crown Vic and put them away. The next decade brought a sense of normalcy and stability. I was offered a job out of the blue to work for City Sports, a sporting goods chain of stores on the East Coast. I talk more about that time in episode one. In some ways, my stint there was a huge part of my spiritual seeking, my evolution, just not the way I expected. I could easily record an entire podcast about that time working in Boston but onward to the next phase of my path. After going through another divorce with Nick's mom, I was invited to help my cousin renovate his house while living there for the summer. Marblehead welcomed me with open arms. I was single, my lip was fixed. I moved out of the cousin's third floor, found a beautiful apartment overlooking the harbor, and I was in the best shape of my life unattached, and free to play. Nick was living with his mom in New Jersey at the time. I was having the time of my life hanging out with my best friend Jimmy and completely out of seeking mode. It was party time. I had no need to keep evolving. Life was good. And, dear listeners, a major inner earthquake was about to strike. After doing the dating game for about a year, I found a woman who I thought was the one. Beautiful, funny, with a quick wit, athletic. We met in the spin class with her boy, then-boyfriend next to her. Should have been a red flag. Best of all, she loved my son Nick, as by now he had decided he wanted to live with his father. I asked her to marry me. She said yes. By the way, she was wife number three, if you're still keeping score. We got married in Maine on Popham Beach in May, and it was bitter cold, a sign of things to come. Ten months after our wedding, she came to me one morning as I was getting Nick ready for school and said she was leaving. Where are you going? No, I'm leaving you. I was stunned, crushed, heartbroken, and she walked out the door. Why did I crash so hard? It's simple. I literally said out loud when I knew I was going to marry her that I'm done. No more seeking. No more evolution for me. I found my woman. She loves me, loves my son. Now we can live a normal muggle life. I put all those eggs into that basket. And the universe came along and said, Sorry, lad, we're not done with you yet. You signed up for the growth and evolution course. You can't opt out. Yet I fought hard to win her back, beat outside her window like a lovesick hound, begged, pleaded, promised to be a better man. What I had, what had I done, I kept asking. I had no idea. And then a beautiful line from a tiny little book that had sat unread on my nightstand nine out of the ten months I was married helped shift me from heartbreak to hope. If someone doesn't want to be with you and they leave, they are doing you a favor. What? Wow. 
The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz blew my mind and began the slow healing process around my heart. And so began my next phase of my spiritual life. The year was 2001. The amazing part of this story was the fact that all the trauma I had up until that point, my birth, the many operations, the accidents, the abuse by my brother, the marriages, none of that was exposed the way it was this past summer while camping. In some ways, I was like a functioning alcoholic, except I was a functioning trauma survivor. I had just managed it for so long that I had almost forgotten it. So back to July 2001, after taking a five-day workshop with Don Miguel, after getting divorced that year, I knew I had found my path. The love and the heart opening and burst of awareness I felt during those five days was miraculous. I wanted more. Without a doubt, Don Miguel Ruiz changed the course of my life. So I packed up my life and moved to California to join a new Toltec Dreaming course that was just starting. Dreaming was a three-year program that would meet one weekend a month, gather on Friday, spend Saturday and half-day Sunday sitting and dreaming or listening to Don Miguel or Barbara Emrys speak about how our mind works and how to create a new dream for ourselves if the old one no longer serves us. I was like a man thirsty for the love and awareness that seemed to quench my soul and spirit. The voice that had judged me my whole life got quiet. The story that I was a victim was dispersed. For the first time in my life, I took responsibility for what I had created and chose to uncreate what wasn't serving me. I can honestly say it was the first time that I saw raw possibility, real transformation growing inside. This time, it felt like I could accomplish anything and everything. The world was magic, and I was a wizard living amongst all that magic. I met Megan in California. She was a dreamer, too. She was my fully shining woman. Listen to Meg's Fully Shining Women Leading Our World podcast from March 2021 to find out what that is asked her to marry me on our first official date. She said yes. Later that day, we had the same vision while meditating at Swami's garden in Encinitas that we were to be married on top of the Pyramid of the Sun in Teotihuacan, Mexico, by Don Miguel and all the dreamers from her dreaming group. Two weeks later, that actually happened. I truly felt like all the trauma and heartbreak and self-loathing had vanished, and now my life was on a rail to permanent happiness and love. And of course, much of that came true, and of course, a personality and behaviors that took half my life to become intricately woven into the man I was aren't so easily transformed. 20 years now into this marriage, Two children together, two parents dying, businesses flourishing and collapsing, and wondering where these aware dreamers went off the rails has me seeing the perfection 
in all of it. I get that I don't believe my own story. I get that this planet could be heaven on earth. I know how to merge with the infinite. But hurt my son while he's riding his bike at the skate park? I'm coming for you. Pull me over for barely rolling a stop sign in my hometown and not cutting me some slack as a firefighter? Still writing me a ticket? (laughs) I'm going off on you, dude. Gradually, the shadow, the rage, the hurt, the pain had to find a way out. Eventually, I had to stop hiding and face this legacy of this damage head on. And that, my friends, brings me to now. It took a crack in my armor, allowing in some ray of awareness to seep in to recognize I had been living with a limp, a handicap my entire life. And then one last destructive eruption last summer to show me how devastating my behaviors had become, how the legacy that lived inside me was now being handed down to my children. I was appalled and humbled and on my knees once the crack fully opened. I was ashamed. How at age 65 could I still be struggling to find balance, empathy, compassion, and love? It's all about this one word, evolution. And as I said in the beginning of the story, I feel like I have lived a charmed life. If for nothing else other than my desire to keep evolving. And this isn't some superpower only gifted to a select few. This ability to change and grow and evolve lives in all living things on this beautiful and turmoiled planet. It's time. It's time. It's time. Thanks for listening. If you like the show and listen on Spotify, please follow and rate the podcast. If you are on Apple, you can rate and write a review. And if you want to show us some love on whatever podcast platform you listen on, that would be much appreciated. This podcast has been edited and produced by Gilroy Productions. Thanks, buddy. Love you.